0: Hello, and welcome to the second edition of Can of Corn. Thanks to everybody who listened into the pilot episode. I got a lot of great feedback and decided to bring it back for an encore edition. So I have a number of great topics to get to today, all throughout baseball. Before I get to those, I got questions from a number of you relating to what exactly is a can of corn. So besides my personal preference for alliteration, I think that they're fun... A can of corn is simply a routine fly ball to an outfielder that's caught for an out. But I went and did a little bit of digging. And as it turns out, according to MLB.com, that term actually dates back to the mid 19th century when grocers at grocery stores and general stores would use a long wooden stick with a hook on the ends to hook down cans of corn and other canned goods off the tops of grocery store shelves. And they would catch it in their apron. And so a can of corn became a euphemism for an outfielder catching a routine fly ball because grocers would catch routine cans of corn off the top shelf. So I want to talk about the upcoming amateur draft. So it's currently set between June 10 or July 10, and we're waiting to hear a finalized date, and hopefully we'll hear something in the next couple weeks But it hasn't garnered a whole lot of media attention, and I think it's because something that's garnering a lot of the headlines is the potential contraction of minor league baseball. But this year's draft is only going to be five rounds in comparison to the normal 40. Now, if you look back at the history of the major league draft, it's relatively new in terms of the history of baseball. The first major league draft was held in 1965, and it went on for 72 rounds. So this year, it's only going to be five rounds. And next year, it's going to be 20 rounds, a maximum of 20 rounds, I should say, per an agreement between Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association. So I think that this is pretty bad for the game in terms of player development. Now, I understand why they're doing it. It's money. And there's a really interesting article out there by J.J. Cooper of Baseball America. Last year teams spent a combined $61 million on signing bonuses for players signed after the fifth round. So, of course, it's a money thing. There's no money coming in. Nobody's going to the ballpark. There's no games, no TV revenue, no advertising revenue. So I totally get it. But from a player development standpoint, I just thought it was really interesting to go back and look at some of the great players that have been drafted after the fifth round throughout baseball history and what's going to happen to players this year who – are potentially going to be great major league players that don't get drafted. So let's let's look at some names. And I'm not talking guys who had good careers or great careers. I'm talking about some of the greatest players in the history of major league baseball. So if you go back to the inaugural draft of 1965, in the 12th round, a high school pitcher was taken out of Alvin, Texas, by the name of Nolan Ryan, I don't even need to say any more than that, but 27 seasons, 5,714 strikeouts, there were 294 players taken before Nolan Ryan in that year's draft. Just think about that next time that you don't get picked for something or you get overlooked. Just remember, 294 baseball players were chosen before Nolan Ryan at one time, so let that sink in. You go a little bit more recently, well, not a whole lot more recently, 1976, in the seventh round. A high schooler was chosen out of Tampa by the name of Wade Boggs. Five batting titles, eight silver sluggers, a three twenty-eight average over 18 seasons. One of the greatest pure hitters ever to step into the batter's box. And then you look at other players. John Smoltz, 22nd round taken by Detroit. Mike Piazza, 1988. 62nd round by the Dodgers. Now, I know some people would put an asterisk next to that with his potential ties to performance-enhancing drugs, but I'm just looking at Hall of Fame baseball players taken in really late rounds, regardless of how you feel about Piazza's potential PED use or not. He was a late-round draft pick. And then, of course, more recently, in 1999, Albert Pujols, one of the greatest sluggers. And I know that his second half of his career – Baseball fans coming up, younger kids now, don't look at him this way. But Albert Pujols, for a long time, more than 10 years, was arguably the greatest hitter in in baseball. And despite what's happened over the second half of his his career, over 19 seasons, 656 homers, and even 300 lifetime average, and something that doesn't get brought up a whole lot, but in today's era especially with strikeouts the way they are, uh, 1,322 walks compared to 1,279 strikeouts. That's awfully impressive over almost a two-decade career. So just looking back at the history of the draft, it just really made me think about what's going to happen to players who don't get drafted, and we don't know what we're missing because the draft's only limited to five rounds this year and 20 rounds next year. So what it could do is create a backlog of, uh in college baseball but i think an interesting point an interesting dynamic is that compared to other sports division 1 college baseball only has 11.7 full scholarships for players and you divide that among your players so that's for your entire roster of about 40 players on a division 1 college baseball team you're dividing 11.7 athletic scholarships between them and that's compared to what was it 85 yeah 85 scholarships full scholarships for power five football programs so i think especially in today's era guys who are playing more than one sport are going to go to college and if they have an option to choose they're going to play football or they're going to play basketball because they have an option to play one of those sports and they'll definitely get a full ride whereas for baseball they're lucky if they get a half scholarship so i think from a player development standpoint this is really bad for baseball. So I want to talk about the potential contraction of minor league baseball, something that I just briefly mentioned in the previous segment. So essentially, major league baseball and minor league baseball have to renew their agreement. And major league baseball would like the number of teams to be cut down from 160 to 120. So essentially, there would be no more short season or rookie ball except for the Arizona League and the Gulf Coast League, which are rookie league teams that play out of their major league clubs' spring training facilities. They're not revenue generating minor league clubs like other levels of minor league baseball. So I think the one thing that people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, I should say, is Major League Baseball is not subject to federal antitrust laws. And there was a really interesting article, and and I encourage you to go look it up, written by Michael McCann of Sports Illustrated back in November of 2019, when Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball originally began to talk about contraction before the story gained momentum and it came back out into the spotlight this week that they were still exploring that option so to give you some background michael mccann is a lawyer and he's a tenured law professor at the university of new hampshire so to give you some background minor league or i should say major league baseball's federal antitrust exemption goes back to 1922 in the federal baseball club versus national league case and it was heard by the supreme court And essentially, federal league owners, which was a professional baseball league in those days, sued the National League, which went on to become Major League Baseball, as it's known today. They were claiming, the federal league owners were claiming that Major League Baseball had monopolized baseball, but the Supreme Court ruled that baseball was not interstate commerce and therefore not subject to antitrust laws. So fast forward to 1953. In a case of Tulson versus New York Yankees, the minor league baseball pitcher sued, says he was good enough to be a major league pitcher, but that the Yankees wouldn't let him be one. And back in those days, there was what was called the reserve clause. There was no free agency, and so players were bound to pitch in the minor league system of the parent club that, you know, quote-unquote, owned their rights. And so an interesting... Decision came out of that case, and this court ruled that Congress had not acted, and that the federal antitrust exemption of Major League Baseball was well known, and Congress had not taken legislative action, and so therefore the court was going to stand by the previous ruling in 1922. So you fast forward to today, and Congress still has not acted on Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption as it. It relates to minor league baseball and their relationship with minor league baseball. So McCann makes a good point in his article that potentially, if Congress were inclined to do so, and when initial talks came out about the contraction of minor league baseball, more than 100 members of Congress, bipartisan, supported, sent a letter with their signatures on it to Major League Baseball opposing this potential contraction. So if Congress were so inclined they could potentially strip Major League Baseball of its antitrust exemption when it comes to its relationship to Minor League Baseball. And that might give some leeway for Minor League owners who were financially harmed by the contraction to sue Major League Baseball in federal court. And that's at the federal level. And then you get into—McCann talks about, as a lawyer, there's different antitrust laws in different states— And so owners of minor league baseball teams in specific states could sue at the state level. A number of media reports this week from various sources have indicated that A-Rod and longtime girlfriend Jennifer Lopez are looking to potentially become minority owners And the new for the new york mets and that they've hired jp morgan chase to gather capital and get investors to help them buy the mets a-rod and j-lo would be minority owners now their net worths are nothing to sneeze at they're both in the hundreds of millions of dollars but for the most part majority owners of major league baseball clubs usually fall within that billionaire category Interestingly enough, Jorge Moss, the Miami real estate mogul and entrepreneur, as listed as A-Rod and J-Lo's target for being the majority owner in the club. Now, Moss, interesting guy, as I mentioned, a Miami guy. A-Rod, of course, grew up in Miami. Moss was going to buy the Miami Marlins and put a bid to buy the Marlins before Derek Jeter and his ownership group led by Billionaire. Bruce Sherman ended up getting the winning bid, and that ownership group took over. But Moss was going to buy the Marlins, his hometown team, and so it looks like he may still be interested in potentially investing in the club. Now, in a club, I should say. Now, some reports have indicated he's not interested, but there's a lot of different information out there, so we'll we'll see what happens. But something that I'd like to point out is that would mean Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter were would be back in the same division again. Now I know that they were both teammates for a long time for the New York Yankees in the American League East. But Arod and Jeter have known each other going back way back into the early nineties when they both came up as two of the best short young shortstops in the game. Of course Nomar Garcia Parra with Boston was there. They were kind of the trifecta. So it was Garcia Parra with Boston, Arod with Seattle, and of course Jeter with the New York Yankees and so Jeter as CEO of the Marlins and then A-Rod potentially having a front office role with the Mets it would be a really interesting dynamic now that they've both moved off of the playing field and into the front office but we'll see what happens certainly an interesting story So I'll wrap things up with On This Date in Baseball History, and today is Sunday, April 26th. So on this date, in 1961, Yankees right fielder Roger Maris hit his first of 61 home runs. He went on to break Babe Ruth's storied home run record that year, a record that would stand for Maris until 1998, When Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa would break his record, of course, a lot of people, myself included, would put an asterisk next to that due to both of those players' links to performance-enhancing drugs. But nonetheless, on this date, uh, in 1961, Roger Maris hits his first a 61 at Tiger Stadium in Detroit. And interestingly enough, Mickey Mantle, who was neck and neck with Maris for most of the year, they were kind of racing each other. Both of them potentially were going to break Ruth's record, and Mantle would go on to get injured, and Maris ended up passing Ruth. But Mantle that day homered twice, one from the right side of the plate and one from the left side, and the Yankees would win in a 13-10 to 10 slugfest that afternoon at Tiger Stadium. And on this date in 1995, Coors Field opened, one of my favorite ballparks, and the Rockies went on to win 11-9 in 14 innings, and Dante Pichette was the hero that day, hit a walk-off three-run home run for Colorado. So that'll wrap things up for Can of Corn Episode 2.